0: Mets are amazing, 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 amazing. There's a fly ball, hit on the left, waiting is Jones, the Mets of the World Champion. Here's the one-two pitch, check him out, Steve has 19 strikeouts. Swung on, hit on the ground through. Jones on the run. This one has a chance. Come run! Right. Mike Piazza and the Mets lead three to two. To left field, Floyd. And after running one shot over the National League, the Mets have a title to show for it. 2006 National League East champions. Here's the payoff pitch from Familia to Fowler on the way, and it's in there. Strike three! Called. The Mets win the pennant.
1: The New York Mets have
2: won the National League, pennant. put it in the box. It's an end of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, November the 18th, 2018. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check out the show all the time over at our friends, MetsMorizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you can leave me a review on iTunes, it'd be greatly appreciated. Hope everybody's doing well. Holiday week coming up, and I uh, figured to get a podcast in here before the Thanksgiving holiday. And uh, provided that no big news drops uh, over the holiday weekend, this will probably be our podcast for the week. And it's a good one. I had a chance earlier today to catch up with a former ESPN columnist. Uh, you saw him over at Foxport.com, SP Nation. Uh, He's got about seven books out. Just recently came out with a book called Powerball, Anatomy of a Modern Baseball Game, Rob Nyer. And uh, we'll talk to Rob about a number of things, and I think it's pretty appropriate the same week that Jacob deGrom won the Cy Young that we have Rob basically breaking down a modern baseball game, a September 2017 baseball game. And while he's watching the game, essentially write about different topics about the modern game. Uh, this isn't the first time this has been done. Keith Hernandez did something uh, similar, uh, broke down a game very technically from a baseball uh, play, former player's point of view back in the early 90s. I think it was called Pure Baseball. I have it somewhere in my uh, bookshelf that's uh, right behind me right now. And, and then there was a Dan Ockrent uh, book back in the early 80s called Nine Innings, which I believe it was the Orioles in, and the Brewers, and actually uh, a great podcast called Baseball by the Book which dives into different baseball books. And if you haven't subscribed to it, you should. Some really good work being done over there. Had Dan Akron on uh, probably about six months ago, around that time. So it wasn't too long ago that that book was revisited uh, many, many years later. So Rob Nair will be joining us, and we'll get into some of the new topics that are around modern baseball. Bullpenning, uh, the shift, uh, quality of play. Uh, Is the the Grom Cy Young basically the cherry on top of – even the mainstream writers and mainstream fans admitting that wins is a thing of the past because of the way that the game is played, the randomness of teams scoring and, and how much a starting pitcher, or any pitcher for that matter, has control over the uh, one-loss record. So, uh, you know, we'll dive all uh, into that with Rob. Of course, the big news, and it's been a, a slow start to the offseason, uh, not really tons of rumors. I think right now the biggest news you have is – and, and pretty much when I set up the offseason in my last podcast, the Mets are, are at least, you know, if you listen to Jeff Wilpon, you listen to Brody Van Wagenen, you listen to Mickey Calloway, a couple of different things. You know, number one, uh, it sounds like they're going to try to take whatever budget they have a- and really address the, the glaring needs of this high 70s, probably, and, and I think it was even Jeff Wilpon said, Advanced metrics have them as a low-80s win team and try to address those needs rather than putting all their money into winning the offseason and getting themselves a Harper or a Machado, which, look, those aren't going to hurt you, those kind of moves, but I broke it down. I broke down the tax. I broke down the payroll. To be able to invest 30 to $40 million in one player, I think every team has to think long and hard before they do that. And I suspect that teams that those players will wind up on are going to be very similar to what Alex Rodriguez did in 2001 when he he signed with the last place team that uh, or a team Texas that was was good um, but had some pitching issues and had some other needs and then he winds up going out to Texas and they finish in last place so it really didn't address what that team needed to get themselves back into the postseason, a team that, that had won subdivisions divisions but couldn't get past the Yankees. So uh, Mets are going to go more in the direction of looking at the bullpen, uh, center field, catcher, maybe second base. I mean, maybe Jeff McNeil moves over to third, or maybe they put Jeff McNeil in a super sub uh, situation. Uh, we'll see, but I am okay with that. I know that's not sexy, and I have a feeling that's going to be a, a big thing this offseason. I think, the fans, they're going to want to see a sexy move, and it goes back to what I said in the podcast to set off this offseason. It's not about winning the offseason back page. It's about building the right team, and you know, I wouldn't trade a Syndergaard. I wouldn't uh, just make a move to get a back page, to get a little bit of buzz on a cold December day or a cold January day, because by the time the season starts and you're in the middle of May, that, that wears off, and that's a long memory. And really, nobody cares. So, you know, that's the direction it appears the Mets are going. Uh, I, I think it'll be interesting to see, and I think it is a direction that can yield a team that could compete for a playoff spot and maybe a division next year. But way too soon to uh, to talk about that. As for DeGrom winning the Cy Young, I mean, look, I was wrong. Back in August, you guys remember I said that he didn't have the storyline to get the award, that the win-loss record, although it has been diminished would, would bite him, and in a lot of ways, I think it helped him, which actually the narrative's twisted towards DeGrom. And I know some people are going to say, well, sure, you're trying to defend your position back in the, uh, the middle of the summer. Uh, but, you know, look, Max Scherzer has won the award before, and metrically, there was a difference. DeGrom was better, but it's not this huge difference. And in Aaron Nola, I know the Phillies faded down the stretch. He's not too far off either. Now Degrom is better, without a doubt. But I felt that if Nola had pitched in a pennant race and had pitched big games down the stretch, that would give him a bump. And Scherzer, uh, he's just—he's won it before. He's great. I mean, he's, he's got name recognition, and, and and I think that that does help and that does count for some of the voters. But it's almost like the lack of wins, how good Degrom was pitching, and how little he was getting out of it, started to play nationally, and I don't want to say got him the sympathy vote. But really put him on a spotlight with a lot of the writers, where you know they essentially were like, "Hey, uh, we can't overlook a guy that has pitched this well." And in context of Mets history, this is the fourth if you if you believe in wins above replacement, this is the fourth best performance. Uh, and I'm using Baseball Reference for this uh, behind Gooden's '85 and and two of Seaver's seasons, '73 and '71. '73, of course, is when he won the Cy Young Award and the Mets went to the the World Series against. Uh, Oakland, uh, and it's a shade better than Matlock, who uh, also had a, a not-so-great record in 1974, a 13-15 and 15 record. Uh, so, you know, the DeGrom is right up there in the pantheon with some really great names. And again, this is better than uh, Johan Santana's 2008, Pedro Martinez's 2005, and, and some other great Mets pitchers like, you know, Frank Viola's 1990, Al Leiter who had a great 1998, so, you know, so on and so forth. Even R.A. much better than R.A. Dickey's a Cy Young season, which was the last player, Mets uh, pitcher, to win a Cy Young award. Now, the, if you want to just do a quick, fun debate, is it better than Gooden's 85? No, and, and I'll tell you why. If you really want to have some fun, if you, you may remember this if you were old enough and invested in that pennant race, but Gooden went into September and gave up in 53 September innings in a pennant race, a very tight pennant race. The Mets wound up uh, winning 98 games and losing the division by three games, that tells you how uh, competitive it was with the Cardinals. Gooden gave up two earned runs in 53 innings, and those two earned runs came the last start of the season for him, October 2nd, when it was already decided. The division had already been decided. So uh, think about that. Gooden went out in the heat of a pennant race against teams like the Cardinals, and I think there was a start in L.A. against the Dodgers, uh, you know, Chicago and Wrigley Field, places that you know, no matter what the team's record, And certainly the Dodgers and the Cardinals, they were the two teams that faced off in the playoffs. But no matter what the team's record, uh, it's a really tough places to play and to pitch well against some good teams, especially the Cardinals, who were uh, a team that was the antithesis of what you see today, you know, slapping the ball all over the ball yard, stealing bases, speed, putting a lot of pressure on a pitcher. And Gooden was that dominant in a pennant race. And and you know what? It's nothing against the Grom. Uh, You got to give that, uh, you know, over him. Now, as far as Seaver, 73... Uh, Seaver seventy one. I wasn't around to see that. Uh, certainly, those pennant races, you know, seventy three specifically, yielded a playoff spot, and, and I'm sure Seaver pitched some really big games down the stretch. Uh, but look, you have to look at it uh, in the totality, and, and it's it's such a you know it's six of one half dozen of the other. You know, Degrom may have just put in the second best pitching performance in Mets history in a season that, unfortunately, if he was with a team like the 2015 team. I think there'd be more of a buzz about this debate about how good he is. And and I don't think it has anything to do with the one loss record. So uh, we'll take a quick break. Let's get to it. Rob Nyer, he has a lot to talk about. We'll get to this whole one loss thing, the wins, the Cy Young, and, and tons of other modern topics as he talks about the modern baseball game from his lens, managers, the impact of managers, shifts, the quality of the game, bullpenning, and, uh, and a ton of other things that – are part of this modern baseball, which just 10 years ago would would almost look like you were watching a game from another planet sometimes if you go out there to the Bully Park. Uh, So let's take a quick break. When we return, Rob Nyer, former columnist at ESPN, author of the book Powerball, Anatomy of a Modern Baseball Game, will be joining us. We'll be back right after this.
3: How would you encapsulate what you were able to do this year? Um, Looking back, um,
2: you know, I always said that there were a couple starts um, in previous years that I could look back and if I could al- find a way to eliminate those that I feel like it would kind of take me to the next level. And, you know, I was, a- was kind of, I was able to do that this year. Um, you know, I didn't really have those starts that I let get out of hand. And looking at how those had happened in the past, it was out of frustration and um, kind of uh, letting the game speed up on me. Um, you know, I really tried, with runners on, I tried to slow it down. Go at my pace and really concentrate and focus on uh, the pitch I was going to throw next, and, and just try to execute it, and then you know go from there. And that seemed to work out for me. So you know, hopefully, um, you know,
1: it can keep getting better.
2: back, and joining me, a longtime columnist you guys remember from ESPN, SB Nation, a bunch of places. He's got his seventh book that just came out about a month ago, Powerball, Anatomy of a Modern Baseball Game. It's by Harper. It's Rob Nyer. Rob, uh, long time. Thanks for coming on, and I'm going to tell you a quick story. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but when I started uh, writing, blogging, radio, whatever you want to call it, about a decade ago – one of the first uh, national attention, if you want to call it, I got was when you were at ESPN and we were debating Mark Teixeira and Joe Maurer for the MVP. And uh, it was fun. You were real cool about it. And uh, I learned a lot. And uh, it's been a while, so it's a pleasure to finally get you on the show. How are you?
1: I'm I'm well, thank you. And uh, I, I, I do remember that. Um, uh, it was fun. And one of the fantastic things about that part of my career, especially when I was at uh, that that bit at the end, toward the end of my time at ESPN was, um, was the, the, I had a great chance to feature other people's work. uh, And uh, that was incredibly rewarding. It's probably my, my, the, the best thing about my career is, is, is all the chances I had when people still looked at, at, at link dumps, um, um, to to say, hey, here's this other thing happening over here. You guys should check it out. And uh, that's kind of gone away out there in the real world for the most part. But but there was a little there. Was, there were a few years there when when you could really make a difference, and, and that was a lot of fun.
2: No, absolutely. And that was really as the internet
1: was exploding and blogs,
2: the beginning of this debate. Uh, analytics versus scouting and all the stuff that right now is is pretty much passe. In your book, and I know this has been done before, I mean, Keith Hernandez wrote a book about 20 years ago, uh, looking at a game through nine innings. He actually did an American League and National League game back at that time. It was a book called uh, Nine Innings uh, many years ago in the mid-80s, and yours is a look at the modern game. So... I'm assuming you got inspiration from some of the prior versions of this. And uh, I'm curious, you know, end of the year, September, sometimes you don't get the greatest baseball. Uh, it's an interesting uh, project and an interesting time of the year back in 2017 that you took this on. So walk, I guess, walk the listeners a little bit through, you know, the genesis of this and why you, you chose this topic in this format.
1: Well, I wish I could could take any credit for the, the, the format. Um, but you mentioned the other books i was a huge fan of nine innings when it came out back in the 1980s um it was i think it was one of the the formative books for me um it, when i was i think that came, i think it came out in 19 well, i know it came out in 1985 so i was in college had already been reading bill james and was always looking for another for for for, for more great baseball reading and Nine Innings, I just tore through it. I probably read it two or three times. Um, so, yes, uh, that was uh, being a part of that that legacy or that tradition was, was attractive to me. But this book wasn't my book, wasn't my idea. An, an editor came to me um, and uh, said, I'd love someone to write a modern day version of Nine Innings, which I mean has been. Uh, when we were having this conversation, it had been 32 years, basically, um, and I think he might be the person to write it. And uh, having been such a fan of that book and and other books like it, um, uh, it was attractive to me the idea of of, of trying trying to do that, uh, tell the story of baseball as a whole through the the lens or the prism of one game, uh, and. And then the game itself, I also didn't choose. Um, it was I, I assumed that um, once we'd agreed that to do the book, um, I, I came up with an outline of things I would like to write about. And once we'd agreed to do the book together, uh, my editor and I, uh, my assumption was that I would actually go to the ballpark, um, watch a few games, choose one of those, and, and write about it. While all this was happening, it was the middle of September or even might as even been late September um in in twenty seventeen. So my assumption was, well, if this book's gonna come out next year, I need to get up to Safe Co. Field in Seattle this weekend and see all three games and hope that one of those is worth writing about. But my editor quickly disabused me of that, that notion. He he thought we needed to have a larger selection of games to choose from. And I, I agreed with him ultimately. So instead of me going to the game, um, we mostly he chose a game that would be fun to write about, uh, contain at least most of the elements, most of the, the themes we wanted to hit on, or I wanted to hit on, and uh, and then just watch that game over and over again, and listen to all the different audio feeds that were available. And that's something that Dan O'Grin didn't have back in 1982 when that's the game the game he wrote about actually happened in 1982. Um, he was at the ballpark, um, which is great. <clears throat> but I also, but but I got to watch the game over and over again, thanks to uh, the wonders of uh, the uh, MLB at bat um, or whatever the TV version is at bat, and and listen to all the different audio feeds. So that's sort of how it all came together. And then it was just a matter of watching the game, listening to the different feeds, and uh, and um, and hitting all the high points or almost all of them.
2: Rob Nyer joining us at Rob Nyer on uh, Twitter. Powerball, Anatomy of a Modern Baseball Game. Great book. Check it out. And what's cool about it, everyone, is that uh, you know, as Rob is watching the game, he's, he's going into different topics. And uh, actually this week, talking to you made a ton of sense cause, and it's New York topical, I get, but Jacob deGrom wins the Cy Young. And I mean, the team has a losing record with his starts. Uh, he wins 10 games. Now, I know uh, it's you know 13 wins with Fernando Valenzuela and King Felix that that's low win totals have been Cy Young award winners uh, before, but it really a lot of the concepts and I'm sure some of the concepts that are rather new that you talk about in this book I almost feel like are coming to fruition. I have to tell you, Rob, back in August when everyone was talking about DeGrom for the Cy Young, I told everyone it's not going to happen. He doesn't have a story. He's not Scherzer with the history. Uh, Nola, if the Phillies win a division. Uh, and has big starts. Those are the stories or the narratives, so to speak, that are going to get the play. And I couldn't be more wrong than that. In a lot of ways, he created a narrative with the losing, or the no decisions, or the team losing. So uh, it's almost full circle. Here you are talking about modern concepts, and we're talking the week that the Grom wins the Cy Young.
1: Yeah, and it's it's a great point you make about the story, because you're right. If if without that storyline maybe he would maybe he wouldn't have done quite as well i, I think he probably still wins um because his, his victory was so overwhelming i think didn't everybody except one voter have him first i mean i think sure. it was yeah um so it it and we've steadily seen over the last i don't know what it is 6 or 8 years an erosion of the idea that uh, a Cy Young winner has to have a great record um because you mentioned Felix Hernandez. I think when Zach Grinke won his at the Royals, I think he won maybe 15 or 16 games, which seemed like a very small number at that time. And that it's just sort of been – now, what would happen if a pitcher went 5-19 and 19 or something? Uh, or you know, the, Nolan Ryan one year was probably the best pitcher in baseball with the Astros, but he would win – I think it was 7-16 and 16 or something like that and, and didn't come close. What would – is, could a seven and seven and sixteen pitcher win this? I don't know. Maybe we're, we're probably moving toward the point, at least, where a pitcher could win with a record like that. Uh, and I, I think it's I think it's a positive de- development. Obviously, I mean, I, people like me have been advocating for this sort of thing for a, a long, long time. Um, and there's also, you know, the fact that very few pitchers win 20 games anymore because of the way the game is, has evolved, um, I think that, in a sense, devalues wins. Now it isn't expected that a great pitcher... It used to be, in the old days, you just assumed that a great pitcher would win 20 games, or, or, or at least could win 20 games. Nolan, or not Nolan Ryan. Um, I mean, he did a few times, of course. But Warren Spahn won 20 games, it seemed like, every single year. You just expected that. Of great pitchers, but when it becomes a thing, something you don't expect from a great pitcher, well, it's hard to hold the Cy Young winner up to that standard. Um, And I think that the just the very idea of wins, and Brian Kenny's played his part, of course, and as others have, the 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 win itself has become devalued as a stat for individual pitchers, and that's of course now uh, most evident in in the Cy Young balloting that we've seen. you know, will we ever? Degrom finished what, ten and nine this season? Is that right? Yep,
2: with a one point seven zero
1: ERA. Yeah, you know, a lot will, of good. Will we see another ten win starting Rob. pitcher win the Cy Award in the next five or ten years? Uh, maybe, we'll see. Maybe. Uh, it's but as the wins as the wins for starting pitchers continue to sort of ratchet downward, we're going to see more and more pitchers have great seasons with nine, ten, eleven, twelve wins, no question. And I, I would assume that that. Uh, some of those guys will win signing awards, so uh, it's interesting. And they might throw it I don't out. Think it's the, pardon me.
2: They might start throwing wins out. I mean, think about it. On the scoreboard now, you got advanced analytics. Is there going to be a day not too far in the future where you'll see ERA and advanced metrics and and maybe FIP and things like that? And uh, agents, I'm sure, always looking to make money, uh, will turn and I know arbitration is still a bit archaic, but it's uh, evolving and say, hey, doesn't matter even if you're 15 and one. Steve Traxel won 15 games in 2006 for the Mets and he had an ERA over five and his peripherals exactly. were awful. So, you know, it kind of goes that, back to, we may be heading that
1: direction. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think that they will largely be thrown out. Um, more and more people just won't bother mentioning the wins and losses. Um, and, uh, and I, I don't think wins and losses are going to have a single, single impact, even the tiniest impact on DeGrom's uh, next contract, um, nor should it. Um, but I, I think that, um it it it'll it, be interesting. Somebody someday someone will write a story of it uh, about all this, and and uh, it'll be interesting to see um, h- how much play Brian Kenny gets because his, of course his kill the win tag, which he stuck with for for a while on Twitter, and of course talked about on TV all the time. Um, a lot of people sort of scoffed, but I think we're seeing it now. I think he has had an impact on the popular discussion.
2: Rob Nyer joining me. You know, I, I I when I saw your book come out, I was thinking of my experience I was at City Field in September Mets Phillies and I sat behind home plate 300 section, good view. And I'm looking at the game And I see the shifts and I see the wild defenses and I see the bullpenning going on around the league. And, you know, you watch a broadcast now and they could get all the metrics down to exactly where these guys hit. I remember talking to Kevin Long about five or six years ago and say, it's going to get harder to hit if they could just put the defense exactly where these guys are hitting it. And I I was wondering, as you're watching this game and you've been an early pioneer of analytics, do you ever take a step back like I did that night and just say, this game is so different. From ten years ago, this game is so different. Forget about it. If I'm at Shea Stadium thirty years ago, Yankee Stadium thirty years ago, and and someone told me what I'm what I'd be watching, I I wouldn't believe it. It's just kind of amazing if you just watch the game and take a step back outside of yourself for a minute and look at what you see. I don't even know if anybody, even the most progressive baseball mind, could have predicted that they'd be watching what they're watching. In no, some cases,
1: I, I think it's yes. I would agree that it's it, it never occurred to me what things how things would wind up. Very few of us are capable of accurately predicting the future, and this is hap- this is true in all walks of life, not just baseball. Uh, when I and I've become significantly more humble over the years, to the point where when I and, and skeptical, and when I see people trying to you know saying that. Uh, they know what's going to happen six months, a year, two years from now, whether it's baseball or, or, or politics or whatever it might be. I, I just sort of shake my head and, and, and think to myself how difficult it is to know what's going to happen. I, I never really uh, spent much, if any, time, say 20 years ago, trying to predict what the game would look like in 2018 um i think if you had asked me at that time i would have said well the game will be smarter than it is now uh people will use analytics well we didn't call it that back then but they'll use the numbers more and smarter than they do now but specifically speaking no i I wouldn't have guessed that we would see as many shifts as we see now Uh, i wouldn't have guessed that we would have so many pitchers throwing 100 miles an hour um I wouldn't have guessed that that I the I don't remember anyone even mentioning the possibility of what we now call Statcast technology where everything is tracked precisely and and hitters know exactly what the what the, the their swing path is their launch angle um I'm sure there were people talking about these things but I don't remember hearing about it um I don't remember reading about it I certainly didn't talk about it um I just thought everything would get, would get people, everything would get smarter. And I, here's the, here's the biggest miss I think for, for me and and a lot of people. Um, Because we perceived the game as proceeding illogically, because we grew up reading Bill James perhaps, and, and spent so much time focusing on what, what, Teams and managers were doing incorrectly, at least by our lights. Um, we were offended by that, or I was somewhat, and wanted to see people be smarter. Well, they are a lot smarter now. What we didn't under- realize is that the game would, at least in some regards, become not more interesting, but less interesting and l- less entertaining. And that's just, that was not even, re- that possibility is not remotely on my radar. Twenty even ten years ago, but that in fact is what, is, in my opinion, is what has happened. Well,
2: you know, it's interesting you brought that up because you
1: you grew up a Royals fan. I know you're a journalist now, so the the
2: fandom is not the priority. But um, I think I read I was doing some research on your book that you know one of the things which makes you it's, I think you had a Royals blog is that you were so logical about where the team is going, and I think it ties into anyone's fandom, and I'll say personally, look, I grew up a Mets fan, and I try to be as objective as possible when I talk about that team, and I've covered New York baseball, but when you know kind of where things are going, and maybe this is the fans that become smarter, it ties into attendance, it ties into passion, it's hard to believe, like the hope you had as a kid that, you know, yeah, the, the 94 Mets uh, stink, But you know what? If this goes right, this goes right, this goes right, this goes right, you know, they could win, and you would have that wonder. And honestly, and I see kids on blogs and commenters, and they're probably in high school. They're not going to ever have that because they have all the numbers that indicate why it shouldn't go wrong. And you basically you said about the negativity and about you know maybe you're looking at it from a prism of what can't be done. It is an interesting shift in mindset, Um, and it does take away some of the fun. But I guess it is a different type of fun now or a different type of way of rooting for the team in some respects.
1: That's right. It is a different type of fun. Uh, I I think, and you're right. It's hard for me to relate to that fan that I was say 20 years ago that I, I, partly because I'm not, not as invested in the Royals, excuse me. Um, for various reasons, I suppose, and partly just because uh, I have been doing this for a while, but I tend to enjoy the game, uh, baseball, just as baseball, regardless of who the teams are. And There are probably a couple teams I root against, um, and I root for teams too. But I root for a lot of different teams for different reasons. Um, but no, I think I think that's right. Uh, I think that fans are more educated now; they they read more uh, accurate analysis, so. If you have a sixty five win team on paper you're gonna you're going to know that going into the season and it isn't like it used to be when uh you go into spring training thinking this might be the year and the fact is it it it's still true, it still might be the year uh the, the unpredictable things still happen every season um, but I think that the the optimism that was once there at, at every off season or every spring. That a lot of that has disappeared, and that hurts teams on the attendance side, no question. Uh, we saw attendance fall this season by, I think it was three or four um, percent, or I should say last season. And it seems to, the the biggest reason seems to be uh, the, the biggest drops came where teams just weren't going. looked like they weren't going to compete, and it started in the beginning of the season. Now, fans are also responsive to in-season performance, so. Things can certainly pick up if a team is playing better than it was expected to play, and vice versa. So you can't blame it just on people having a greater understanding of a team's true quality. Um, but I think that does play into it. When I talk about the game being less entertaining, though, what I'm I tend to focus less on individual teams, although that's fair too. But and, and more on just the, what the game has turned into with its with its emphasis on strikeouts and home runs and for me personally that game isn't as entertaining as one with fewer of those things and more of everything else great double plays runners going first to third on a single to right field uh, stolen bases the list goes on and on everything almost everything <clears throat> is going away except for the what i call the two true outcomes home runs and strikeouts
2: that's a fair point. And that's also very topical here in New York. So the Mets fired their hitting coach. And one of the things they talked about was that they wanted to bring someone in who can adjust <clears> or maybe adjust where the – instead of pigeonholing every hitter into what particularly they – you know what they want them to do, which like you said, home runs, launch angle, work with them to be the best – for lack of a better word, version of themselves as they can be. Now we have a kid here named Jeff McNeil who comes up, and you know who knows what he'll turn out to be. You know he he was hitting for contact, spraying the ball around the field. He has a little bit of power, and and it kind of revived a little bit of the fan base. To say, hey, maybe you know you don't have to have uh, Dave Kingman at every position. Dave Kingman be a better player today maybe than what he was actually playing. So Moneyball, to my my opinion, always was mis misrepresented. Uh, it wasn't just about using stats over human. It was about finding the market inefficiencies. If everybody is going towards launch angle and finding a certain way to win or pigeonholing a certain way to win or a certain way to hit, the pioneer then or the team that's smart will say, hey, how do we diversify? I'm not saying bring back the 85 Cardinals, uh, but look at the Royals from just a couple of years ago. They beat the Mets. That was not a home run laden team. They just kept coming and coming and making contact and against pitchers that have a lot of swings and misses, like Syndergaard and Harvey at the time, and DeGrom, uh, they were relentless, and they had those kind of players. So, you know, maybe that's the next phase here. You know, continuing to use smarts and common sense to say, everyone's doing it this way, let me shift gears a little bit.
1: Well, certainly, that's the ideal. The ideal is to, is to actually to have the power, but not Give up on batting average and contact, and when the Astros won in 2017 they very nearly led the league in home runs and they had a fine batting average and they cut their strikeouts way way down from the season before um, so sure every, every team should be working toward that um, I think it is it's not clear to me that you can win these days with without hitting at least a fair number of home runs. Um, because you've got to do something you're still going to strike. even even the teams that don't strike out they still strike out a ton they're just not striking out relative to the other teams. um the Astros strikeout totals in in 2017 were very low compared to the league but they were very high compared to 20 years earlier um so that's the the tricky part but clearly yes um there isn't a competitive competitive advantage to be found if you can strike out less often. You don't want to – saying strikeouts are irrelevant, it's just not true. It, it, you can live with them, but you'd rather not have to. And so certainly you want to hit for greater contact as long as you can keep most of the power. Um, I also think that you're right, <clears throat> there might be a competitive advantage in finding some players who can – place hit who can bunt who can do what brett butler did get on base 40 percent of the time um there's something to be said for that too i think the the counter argument is that it seems that literally nobody is trying to do that um you just don't hear about teams training their hitters to beat the shift with bunts or uh, ground balls line drives the other the opposite the opposite way Uh, maybe there's something there i it just seems like somebody would have been <clears throat> actively looking for it and maybe they are behind the scenes and we don't know about it but that, that's i wonder if the game because the pitchers are throwing so hard and so well i wonder if the game is structurally set up to defeat hitters who don't swing real hard almost every time who don't go for home runs um and I I, I I wonder and argue in the book, I think a little bit that that maybe the game needs to be changed uh, you know the rules need to change to allow for players like that to thrive once again, because I'm not sure that they can thrive now.
2: That's an interesting point. Are we at the time similar and here's an analogy though know, the NFL and the NBA have made adjustments for offense. The NFL, you know, you really can't touch anybody anymore. The NBA, look, grew up a Knicks fan, love hardcore 90s defense. Um, It was great. It was fun. Uh, I know the league looked at it and said, I can't have games that are in the 70s and televise it. Uh, They changed the rules. And I guess where you're going is baseball's never really changed the rules. They've never done what the NBA and the NFL and the NHL with the neutral zone trap had to do. So you're suggesting that maybe they have – and this is going to be tough because this league is not progressive in that sense. And the fan base, the loyal fan base, it will be tough. It will be tough for me to accept. Um, But are we at the point like the NBA was in the 90s where we're like we can't continue to allow this? It's destroying the game.
1: I wouldn't use the word destroying because uh, the the money keeps going up, the revenues – continue to increase year, year to year, even as attendance goes down. MLB just got a, a lovely new contract extension from Fox. I think the money went up by like 50% through 2020, I think it's 2028. So no, the game's not in any danger of collapsing. But I think in the long term, the, the trends that we see it statistically are not encouraging. Not in terms of revenue, but certainly in terms of attendance, and certainly in terms of just what the numbers look like in ter- with the strikeouts and all the home runs. Now, it, look, it might be that a a critical mass of fans actually wants even more home runs, even more strikeouts. Uh, I I don't think anybody knows, but it I I will take I have I have to. Um, push back a little against the notion that baseball has never done anything, because historically baseball has done plenty of things. Um, Most famously, the mound was lowered in 1969 after the year of the pitcher. Uh, Many other times the strike zone has been adjusted. Uh, The baseball has been played around with, not in recent decades, not that we know about anyway for sure, but back in the 30 years of the 20th century, Thirty or forty years, the ball was messed with all the time to make it more lively or less lively, uh, with with the purely with the the in, well, almost purely with the intention of making the game more entertaining. So it's not until recently that the rules and in particular the strike zone and the baseball were considered sacrosanct, and we can't mess with anything. Well, that, that that's that's a fairly recent. Development, and in my opinion, it's large largely due to the power of the Players Association. Uh, in 1969, if if baseball wants to lower the mound, they just lower the mound. They have a meeting in November, or December, whenever it was, and they say, you know what? Last year it wasn't working. This 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 year of the pitcher, we can't have that again. We're going to drop the, the the height of the mound by three inches or five inches, um, and they did it. And it worked. Um, you just can't do that anymore because of the, the, the Players Association. And that's why baseball hasn't been responsive to these trends that we've seen. They just don't want to get into a massive fight with the players. Um, but I think ultimately, um, if the game is going to get back to some reasonable variety um, of, of on-field events, uh, you've got to do something.
2: Rob Nair with me a couple more before we wrap up. And by the way, if you're reading the book Powerball, you haven't read it. You should read it because like how we're talking is kind of how the book, in my opinion at least, flows. <laughs> um, uh, Rob, uh, managers, you know AJ Hinch, uh, Bob Melvin. I guess those are two the managers in the book that, of the game you watched. You know here. You know, I think back, you have Lou Piniella back in the day and Billy Martin and Bobby Valentine and even Joe Torre, even though he's a different type of personality. The manager was the personality, and, and we've been told in some instances they don't matter. I think there's a misunderstanding. Some of the fans think the front office sits with a button like it. Look, I'm a Stratomatic baseball fan. This isn't Stratomatic baseball yet, okay, where you sit at your house hitting buttons. But um, has the manager – we know he's changed with the demeanor and the way he has to handle a new generation of players, but – are we at a point where is it fair to say that you know they're just there executing a, a you know script? I, I think that's a little bit of a of a narrative from the anti-analytics crowd. What, what is I mean? What about the managers as you watch this game and as you watch the the, the 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 sport evolve? Are we undervaluing them now?
1: I, I wouldn't, I, perhaps, um, but I, I think that managers still get a fair a fair amount of play. I, I do think that there was a period of time and I don't, I don't think it's still true today, but there was a period of time when, when there was an op there was a reaction against the idea that managers were everything. Um, because, you know, the idea that with the, with the, with a few exceptions, the idea that managers were, were making a huge difference season to season just, I think, wasn't true. I, I think they were overrated. Um, at least by a fair, fair percentage of fans and and writers, um, and I think we sort of overreacted against that overrating. And I'm sure you, if you went back to 1996 or seven or something, you could find something I wrote for ESPN.com saying managers were irrelevant and, or at least their their in-game moves were largely irrelevant. Um, we've come back a little bit from that. I think we've gotten in, in many ways we. Once we sort of won the big battle, you know the battle for the the relevance of of analytics um, we were able to come back and say, "Oh, you know what I think I'm, maybe i oh, maybe I was a little bit uh, too hasty to say managers aren't that important or pitch framing isn't that important, et cetera There are a lot of things like that um, I do think that we have a more realistic appraisal of what managers do now Um, we we understand that much of their value comes in not the tactical maneuvers made during the games but comes off the field in the clubhouse how they deal with players Um, but these aren't really secrets I, i mean bill james was writing that sort of thing 35 40 years ago uh, that the manager's job, one of his, his maybe his biggest job is, is is keeping all the players or almost all of them pulling on the same end of the rope for six months. Um, that's that's a tough thing, um, and it might be you'd rather have a guy who is good at that, and maybe that's Dusty Baker, for example, than a guy who's not good at that but really good at the tactical stuff. Um, I don't think anybody gives Dusty Baker great marks for. Uh, his pitching changes, etc., but he seems to have to have done wherever he's been a great job of of managing the clubhouse and, and keeping everybody um, on the same page for for a whole season. Uh, so I think we're more realistic. Managers do make more money than they've ever made before, but they're still not paid a lot. Uh, you look at Joey Cora; he's paid nothing. He's paid roughly the same salary you give a, a 24th, 25th man on your roster. Um, so uh, it, it's, it's, it's still not clear how much value teams think managers have, you know, with the exception of someone like Joe Madden, who's sort of a superstar manager to the extent that we have those anymore. Um, uh, it's, it's still not clear that that teams even believe these guys make a huge difference with the way they um, pay them and the way they fire them after a bad season or two. So um, we're still trying to figure out what those guys mean and, and their roles are changing uh, they have more help than they've ever had before um, they I think the biggest thing now is they have to show willingness to work with the front office and work with the analytics people um, to come up with game plans and and all the rest and if you don't do that you're going to have a tough time getting a job these days
2: yeah it's almost like football you know you have a game plan going in That's that's right you know Last thing before I have you talk about what's coming up for you and some of the things you got going on is bullpenning and the changing of how we start the game, manage the bullpen, which in my opinion is the biggest thing a field manager can do, whether they do it before the game or during the game. Um, is that the uh, 2019 trend or the new inefficiency that everyone's trying to you know figure out? In your opinion, is it that or is it is there something else in 2019 that data analysis progressive minds in the game will uh, come up with which will be the uh, I guess the hot topic out there
1: no I think that is going to be the story in 2019 Uh, I think that we saw the Rays use it a great deal successfully Um, and then a few other teams dabbled over the course of the season Um, even the Dodgers you know you would think oh the Rays that makes sense right they don't have any money they have to they have to scrimp and save and 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 find whatever little edge they can, um, and, but the Dodgers don't have to worry about money. But they they did it too, because it turns out I think teams are realizing, or at least believing. I think they're right, but I could be wrong. Um, is that it doesn't make any sense to shove to to, to shove pitchers into this box starting pitcher. Box that 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 requires the pitcher to give you five or six or ideally seven or eight innings. Um, very few teams have five guys like that who, who can give you those innings and be good. Um, the Dodgers, at times, with all their money, all their resources, didn't have five. They had three or four, so they found the other way. They they, and I think that we're only going to see more and more of that. I will be surprise and I'll be <laughs> I'm happy to be surprised but I'll be surprised if if uh if bullpenning doesn't explode in 2019 as more and more teams look at their roster and say, "Oh wow, we only have three guys like that." Okay, well, this is what we'll do on the other two days. Um so yes, I think that's going to be the story. I don't and then it gets back to what we talked about before. I'm not sure that's great for the game or for the fans. Um I think it means you know means more pitching changes. It means more sort of anonymous players. And frankly, I would love to see a rule limiting the number of, of, of pitchers you can carry on the roster. Um, I think that the game has become less interesting with twelve or thirteen pitchers than it was with with ten or eleven. Um, but again, you're not you're going to have a tough time getting that past the Players Association any sort of roster limits. Um, so. We'll see, but I, I do think that's definitely we're going to see a great deal more of, of that next year than we saw this year.
2: Uh, listen, economically, if bullpenning becomes the trend, it's going to kill the players' association because if you're not going to pay starters big money, and I know relievers their salaries are going up, but you're almost uh, it's almost economic socialism from a pitcher where everybody might make the same money because what's the value of a Noah Syndergaard if he's only going to go four innings and Seth Lugo is going to go? three innings and almost you're going to start to say well they're the same you know it, it that may be the, the 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 straw that broke the camel's back and get the the limits that you talk about you know possibly yeah that's an interesting point
1: I, I i do think that cindergard will still be expected to to give you six or seven i think that the, the there there will just be a there will still be starting pitchers nobody's ever going to ask justin verlander i don't think to to go three or four innings um but there aren't that many guys like that. Um, but I do, it's a good point. I think that we're already seeing this: relief pitchers become more and more fungible. Where you've got at least on a standard pitching staff seven relief pitchers on on the on the roster for a given game. But frankly, there are another five or six back in AAA who are seen as nearly as good as most of the guys on the major league in the major league bullpen. And you see this happen all the time. Um, pitchers come up, they're there for a day or two, they pitch, maybe they don't pitch, then they go back down. Uh, well, they become, most relief pitchers have are, are, are now seen as essentially interchangeable. Uh, so why would you pay those guys a lot of money? Why wouldn't you pay them the major league minimum? But I don't think you're going to see any real impetus for change from the Players Association in, in less or until the the players' share of revenues drops significantly, which it actually hasn't yet, it's still close to 50%. If you go down into the mid-40s, then you're going to have some issues, and the players are going to be looking for changes. Now, that just might mean uh, mandating how much money they get every year, or it could mean roster changes. I'm not sure. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, there's no reason for teams to pay – a lot of money to pitchers who are giving them pitching 30 or 40 or 50 innings a year. It doesn't make any sense. Uh,
2: so the book is Powerball Anatomy of a Modern Baseball Game. Harper is the publisher. Rob Nyer is the author. Uh, Rob, I know you you have you're the commissioner of a Cape Cod type league out on the West Coast. Uh, you, you this is your seventh book. Uh, I know that you know you've written for ESPN and SB Nation and Fox. So what what else do you have coming up? Obviously the book. What else can you let the listeners know about, especially if a bunch of them are fans of, of your work over the years, that you can let us know about what you got going on through the holidays?
1: Oh, I appreciate that. I really – honestly, um, I should – today, um, as we speak, I am fantasizing about starting my next book or at least writing a proposal for my next book, which might not sell, but um, I am pretty excited about a project. I just – I can't quite talk about it yet because it's just it, – still so early i think once i sell the book if i sell it then i can start saying i'm working on this book and i need some help what do you guys think about this um i really hope that that process is about a month or two away uh, so i'm focusing on 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 that and uh and the being commissioner of the west coast league um which uh i it looks like i probably will do again next season and, um it's it, it, it can take up as much time as I want it to do. There, there's no end to what a commissioner can do. It's a question of uh, how much time I have, but that that's been just a, a, a great deal uh, of fun. Last season, I got to my first year, I got to do all the things that all these things I never thought I'd get to do. I got to throw out first pitches at, at, at games. I got to wear a mascots costume for an inning. I got to uh, <laughs> hand out the championship trophy at the end of the season. It, uh, Visit all the ballparks, ranging from Kelowna and uh, Victoria up in British Columbia down to Corvallis and uh, Bend in Oregon. And it, it was just a fantastic summer, and I'm really looking forward to another great season. Well, I wish I would have saw Bud Selig in a mascot, mascot costume. That would have been interesting. <laughs> well, by, by the way, Rob. speaking of Bud Selig, the, the other thing yep. that's... Uh, it looks like my name is actually going to be on the baseball next season, which is another one of those things where you you never think you'll get Very to do cool. something like that. But but that, uh, yeah, that you got to
2: put up on your mantle. I don't know if you collect uh, career trophies, but if I were you, I'd put that one up on the mantle. That's pretty I'm cool. I'm fairly sure hard. I will
1: make Not- I will save one baseball for myself. Yes.
2: <laughs> all right. Listen, have a great Thanksgiving. Have a great holiday. It's been a long time. of meaning to catch up with you. I really appreciate you. you were very generous at your time. Be well, and let's do this again. All right, my friend? Oh,
1: Mike, it's my my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.
2: All right. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate you it. You bet. Anytime. That's that's Rob Nyer, ESPN. Um, as I told you, that was a pretty fun story. Uh, he was always very, very good to me at a time when I wasn't considered – I was like the pirate coming into the uh, – the, the penthouse, let's put it that way. Hey, let's uh, take a quick break. When we wrap up, I know that was a long segment. Uh, just a thought as we were talking to Rob about how bullpenning and how the Mets can implement that. I'll go through that really quick. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. I'm your host, Mike Silva. We'll be back with some more Talking Mets right after this.
0: Well, here's some data for you in talking about these pitching usage ideas. The last three postseasons, when a starter goes six or more, the team is 45 and 24. When a starter goes less than 6, the team is 42 and 63. So almost mirror images of one another. Could you read that one more time? Because I think there's some people watching the game that will not really understand what you just said. I will. Oh, uh, no, 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 no.
3: No, I, I heard you, fellas. I heard you. That was last night. I'm sitting home minding my own
0: business. Matt Viscursion,
3: and John Smoltz are good pals on Fox, waging the war on bullpenning. Realize, of course, that's a classic case of correlation, not causation. Meaning, in this era, pitchers who are kept in a game at least six innings are the ones who are having a successful outing. It's not that teams are winning because they are letting pitchers go six innings. But let's play it out. Maybe we can learn
0: something. Listen. In. I'll give it to you in terms of winning percentage. Starter goes six innings or more, six fifty-two winning percentage. That's pretty good, right? Starter goes less than six, four hundred winning percentage. That's not good unless you're talking about a bad game. Correct. So think about it in terms of the Yankees, right? This was supposed to be a Yankee staff that was going to piecemeal together each game of the postseason because their starters didn't go as deep as some of the other postseason teams. That guy goes seven. Yep. That guy goes seven. They win both of those games. Sabathia's is rolling tonight, and they're in pretty good shape. That's how you do it. Don't get cute. Feed your horses. Let them eat. And use your eyes.
3: Oh, man. Goodness, they, they unloaded the magazine there. Look, I love these guys. But the problem is, they're on national TV. People are sitting home, they haven't studied this. And it sounds like they're making sense. But let's start by going back in time, a time when things maybe made sense to John Spoltz and Matty V. 2005, the AL Championship Series. Every single White Sox pitcher got into the ninth inning. Four of the five pitched a complete game. Contreras, Burley, Garland, Garcia. Later in a World Series sweep, all four Went seven full innings. Their manager, Ozzie Guillen, stayed with his starters, and I've always applauded him for that. It's what made sense at that time. If your starter is dealing and he's not laboring, by all means, ride it out. The fact is, though, that's not how it normally works. Here's how it works now in modern baseball. The more a hitter sees a pitcher, the more success he has. Second time through the order, on-base and slugging jumps. Third time through the order, both go up again. To the point where a hitter in 2017, on average, is slugging a very healthy 4.62. Now look at what a hitter does in 2017, the first time he faces a relief pitcher. The on-base goes down 17 points. Slugging goes down 62 points. It's enormous. So digest that. On the whole, not for every single pitcher, but by and large, a hitter facing a starter the third time in the order turns into an all-star. A guy slugging 4.62 is all-star level. That's what Buster Posey and Adam Jones slugged this year, just to give you an idea. So manage our wise now to avoid that. Not only that, there are more flame-throwing arms to use than ever before. The Yankees just showed this in the wild-card game when their bullpen went eight and two-thirds, giving up just one run, beating the Twins. The bullpen had 13 strikeouts. When you acquire or develop six good arms in the bullpen the way the Yankees have, you basically have covered nine innings. So a starting pitcher is a relic of an ancient time. So this is not just the Yankees. It's all throughout baseball. Take a look at how many excellent relievers there are now in the game. I set the bar at a sub three ERA and better than a strikeout per inning. All right, it's a start. It's a way of doing it. In 1967, there were two of them. 1987, there were five. 1997, 12. 2007, there were 22. This year, there were 42. 42 of those guys. I'm not saying pitching is better. I know strikeouts are at an all-time high anyway, and there's a lot of factors on that, but it's a fact. There are more lights-out, three-out pitchers than ever before. You can hope your starter goes six, and you can wish for the old days, or you can use several arms out of your bullpen and allow fewer runs. And that, by the way, is what is happening throughout baseball.
2: All right, we're back. Talking about this podcast. As I was listening to Rob Nair, and that was a great conversation, by the way. I hope you enjoyed it. Really, uh, maybe a little bit of an egghead, uh, the two of us talking about baseball. uh, Like a couple of uh, baseball wonks, I guess is the the word I would use. But I I thought he gave you a lot of things to chew on. And and that's the book. The book is really, uh, he's talking about... The you know baseball topics while he's watching a game similar where if Rob and I were sitting there watching that A's Astros game talking about those topics and and things happen during the game that bring certain scenarios up and what have you so I, I hope you enjoyed it definitely was uh, uh, topical with the Degrom Cy Young and I've been meaning to get him on and and, and that's been a lot of fun so uh, you know uh, check out the book Powerball Anatomy of a Modern Baseball Game by Rob Nyer at Rob Nyer On Twitter give them a follow if you're not already as far as bullpenning so if that's the big topic in 2019 real quick let's just dive into that how can that play into the 2019 Mets being a more competitive better team and for a team that let's presume they're not going to trade any of their top four starters the Grom, Wheeler, Syndergaard, Mats, uh, do you really need to bullpen with this team and and the question really is can you get more certainty out of the bullpen by pushing the starters back. What I mean is this. You don't know when you're going to need a Seth Lugo. You don't know when you're going to need your closer, whoever they sign. Uh, you kind of have the starter start. You play uh, it out. You play the game late matchups, and you try to get to the point. And this year, for the most part, after Familia, he got you know, a short injury, and then he was traded, it was Gazelman and Lugo closing things out for the most part. And... You had a little bit of Drew Smith, a little bit of Tim Peterson, a little bit of, uh, of Daniel Zamora. You had some of the young you know, pitchers that they're trying to get a look at, the pitchers they acquired when they were out of the race back in 2017. So how do you get some certainty? What do I mean by that? What if you were to say, okay, Seth Lugo, in, in a, in a seven-day week, you're probably going to play five to six games. Do you want to not pitch him more than three times? So maybe you make him the starter three times. You know, maybe he's the Friday starter, the Wednesday starter, the Monday starter. So you know, basically gets a day off in between and you max him out at so many pitches in an inning, you max him out at maybe 2 3 innings and then your the Grom, your Sindogard, your uh your Mats comes in in the fourth inning and conceivably you could then go and pitch him the rest of the game because if they pitch six innings and you would want to get six to seven innings out of Guys like DeGrom and Syndergaard, you're going to be pushing them uh, to the high leverage 7 8 9 innings where normally you'd have to rely on maybe lefty ready matchups. Uh, you know, maybe uh, if your your top relievers are tired, you're going with some B level relievers. Uh, it is something interesting. Now, what really the question is, and I, I believe Kevin Rosenthal had wrote a piece about this at the Athletic late in the season where the bullpenning, the uncertainty of when the quote-unquote opener was going to start, may have been messing around a little bit psychologically with some of the members of the A's pitching staff. I think the only way the bullpenning works, and the Mets have this weapon in Lugo, who's really so valuable in the bullpen, but you could also make an argument you want him as a starter. Maybe you use him in that hybrid role, and if you go out and you sign, let's say, an Andrew Miller, maybe he could be part of that. Maybe Gazellman is better in that scenario where you start him out the first, second, third inning. Now, psychologically... Uh, You know, you could lose that game if you're not on top of it. You could give up three runs in the first inning, and you take, you know, Degrom out of it. Let's say by the time he gets in in the second or third inning, the game's maybe over. Um, You know, especially if you're against a top pitcher like a Max Scherzer and Aaron Nola, the guys that we mentioned earlier. Uh, But it would be very interesting. It would bring some certainty. You would maybe be able to manage your bullpen without burning them out. You're acknowledging that even with this dominant starting rotation, that you probably get the best out of them through six or maybe seven innings. And you manage the game from the front rather than the back. Now, I don't have data uh, at a high level. I don't know what Mickey Calloway is thinking. I don't know what any of these guys are thinking. Uh, All I know is is that you need to improve the bullpen. And look, Jason Vargas is another guy. Maybe you only let Vargas go through the lineup twice. And you say, okay, you're going to be the opener these days. Can you go on you know, one or two days rest a couple of times a week, it really would depend. Now, Lugo, you know, can do it because Lugo, for the most part, was a reliever all year. And I and you want to, there was that game against the Orioles where he kind of played as an opener uh, when they needed a starter. What do you go, four innings? So, you know, I, I really think it's something, as much as I'm a traditionalist, and I think good starting pitching, the traditional way, going seven, pushing these guys to eight innings is the way to go. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think the biggest part of this that you really have to take seriously is, you know, routine. How does this impact the routine of all these guys, including guys who are the openers like Lugo and Vargas or a Gazelman, guys like that? You know, can they handle the difference? Is there a different routine for a DeGrom warming up? in between uh, uh, the third and fourth inning as he's preparing to come in? Will it change his whole routine? Will it change his mindset sitting the first three innings? You're asking these guys to completely do something different. And yes, they're not Stratomatic cards. They're not robots. They're not EA sports players. They're humans who are used to preparing pregame meal, national anthem, getting warmed up. There's a lot to be said for that. So... Uh, a little bit of an interesting thing to think about. So if bullpenning, according to Rob Nair, if that's the big topic of 2019, how can that play into the Mets' favor? That's just some thoughts that I have. Hey, uh, I want to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. I hope you enjoyed the show. I know a little bit of a longer segment, Rob, but I thought it was well worth it. Uh, we'll be back with more Talking Mets podcast uh, as we uh, head after the holidays. Of course, if some news breaks, we'll we'll jump in. We'll be there. Um, but maybe the uh, the, uh, the league will take a little bit of a hiatus for The long weekend. So I hope you and your family have a great, long Thanksgiving holiday weekend. Of course, if you want to check out Rob, you can check him out on Twitter at rob Nyer And check out the book Powerball, Anatomy of a Modern Baseball Game. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. Check me out on iTunes. Check out the replay on iTunes. Leave me a review. Really appreciate it. Be well, everybody.